Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. So thank you for that. We are um, in our third week here in um, our series, Faithful to His Promises. And I really hope that uh, it's been, um, that I hope that the series has been a blessing to you. I mean, it's been a tremendous blessing to me because it just, um, I mean, whenever we have an opportunity to, to preach messages and just really just hammer down like how God is faithful to his promises and center that on the person and work of Jesus, it, I can't help but just worship Jesus and, and see, see the bigger picture of, of his redemptive glory in my own life. And this is a great time of year. But, um, you know, it, it, it's the most wonderful time of year, right? And the reason why, it's because, I mean, we're here to, 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 celebrate, um, to celebrate Jesus. But I also confess that I, like uh, many others in the world, can also get lost during this time and, and forget uh, what this season is all about. And I love the Christmas season because it's really during this time that I'm forced to, to remember. And it's through this process um, that I, I really ponder upon the reason for everything. Like, man, why am I living? Like, why, like it, what is the trajectory of my life? It, what is the purpose of my life? Even though I know it, I've got to ask myself because, I don't know about you guys, but I get distracted. Um, I get distracted very easily. And instead of my life being about Jesus and his mission, it becomes about Chris and Chris's mission. Does anyone relate with that? No? Okay. I'm one of a few people, all right. I'm going to pray that the spirit of honesty come upon this room today. <laughs> Um, but like I said, I know that, I mean, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and it's his purpose and his mission is the reason I live, but like I said, I confess I lose sight of that often, and the very thing that grounds me is God's great, grand story, because when I focus upon the story of God, it forces me to ask myself, Chris, is your life about your story? Is it about God's story? And today, I wanted to talk specifically about um, we're going to go through this redemptive story, but I wanted us to focus on this teaching about our divine design and what it means to be made in the image of God. You see, because all of us here, we do have a divine purpose. And we're going to talk more about this, but all of our purpose really is for the glory of God. And how God wants to get glory, you know, when we talk about glory, we're talking about when the scriptures speak of glory, it speaks about magnificence, worth, significance, and, and beauty, right? We all understand that. Like when, we, when you see a beautiful like sunset or sunrise, like you just can't help but like be, be in shock and awe, right? You're just like amazed, right? So we all understand this concept of glory, but we know that the purpose of our lives is that, is that by the way we live our lives, that God will get glory, and we're going to talk more about that, the scriptures that, that speak about that as well. Uh, but we are going to be in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, a verse I'm sure many of you have already read. <coughs> and we're also going to be jumping around a lot, so please bear with me as we do that. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So some simple, quick observations as we look at that uh, verse. We, we see here that the creation account shows this ascending order of significance with human life as the pinnacle of God's creation act. And of the different creation acts, we see that this is the only one that is preceded with some sort of deliberation, right? When he said, let us make man in our image, that was spoken of nothing else. I mean, God just simply said, let there be light, and there was light. But it's here that we have this, this, this focal point of deliberation in the making of, of man. We see here that human life alone is created in the image of God and it has a special assignment to rule over the created order. And rule, what is amazing about this term is that God 
gives jurisdiction to one of his creatures. This is amazing because the major point of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is God's sovereignty through his creative word. That's why he's, he's speaking things and things are simply coming into existence. Does anyone have that capability? Like you just speak something and it comes into existence? It's pretty amazing. And here he gives humans a share in that, in his creative process. It's really, it's really like this, this beautiful thing of like, hey man, I desire to have you share in this creative process of me making things. Our doctrine of the Trinity cannot be derived solely from the use of the plural when God says, let us make man in our image, but a plurality within the unity of the Godhead can be derived from this passage. In Genesis, the terms image and likeness uh, occurs in three passages. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 3, and Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And Many theologians will agree that image and likeness are, are synonymous. You know that the God that we worship create, created us in his image and likeness. We, we somehow bear his image and we were created just naturally in, in our DNA to, to, <clears throat> to represent him. And it's always been God's plan to bring glory to himself through people. And we clearly see that in this Genesis uh, chapter 1 verse 26 to 28. He told them, people that he made for his glory, he goes, I want you to fill this earth, and I want you to multiply, all right? I want you to have lots of kids, all right, so that, so that this earth would be filled, fill it, okay, with people who are going to image me, who are going to represent me, who are going to show all of creation, and I want you to steward this creation, all right, so much so that I'm going to give you dominion over, over, the, I mean, over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and, and, and the creatures that, that walk on the land. So we see this even totality saying, God is saying, take care of this. Be good stewards by representing me and fill this earth so that, so that I would be given the glory, so that by the way you live and by the way you fill this earth and that every little space on this planet would be filled so that people could see that I'm awesome. And hence, we understand other scriptures. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, speaking of the righteous branch, all right? Speaking of Jesus. Uh, the second half of verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 9 says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we see here very in, in the origin in Genesis chapter 1, the whole purpose of, of God creating people was that they would fill and saturate this earth and, then, and rule under him so that he would be given the glory. Amen? So that's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But, but something terrible happened in the story, did it not? This is why we were made. But in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. We have this picture of, 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 of man and woman saying, okay, we get why we're made, but we don't, we, we don't think it's the best for us. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And there's just some like, quick observations here. But we, we see that one of the common things that you see here is that these three different things, um, good for food, delight to the eyes, and desire to make one wise, are all lives apart from God. Like first, let's look at this concept of, of seeing, uh, looking at the tree and seeing that it was good for food. When you look at the creation account, one of the summary statements you see when God would make things is he would say it is Good. And that makes sense because he's the creator, so he can define and, and declare what is good, right? But here you have, you have, you have human, human the, the very people that were created now are trying to define what is good apart from God. Hence, they're saying that they saw that the food was, that they, that, that they saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food apart from God. Buying into the lie that, you know, as Satan had tempted Eve, buying into the lie that God was somehow holding out on them and, you know, them not believing that God was the source of goodness. Which, needs a, which leads us to the next part of, deli of delighting to the eyes. Since humans now define what is good, 
They can now pursue those things that are pleasing to them because God is out of the picture. Now humans define that goodness. Now we will go after the things that are pleasing to our eyes because we've defined what goodness is. And then lastly, we wanted the tree because it desired to make one wise. Again, now this is humans acquiring wisdom apart from God. We don't need God anymore to gain wisdom. Since God is out of the picture, we define what wisdom is. We define what is right and wrong. We ultimately declare what that is. And because of that, this is a major shift in the story. Because what happens now is instead of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, what begins to fill the earth is rebellion and sin a rejection of God's rule, and this self-exaltation of, you know what, it's all about me, self-reign and self-rule. And this is where the story takes that major shift, right? And check this out. In the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of this darkness, there is this glimmer, this bright light of redemption. At first, you're just thinking, oh my goodness, like what is going to happen here in the story? Like imagine that you didn't hear the story at all. You'd be like, they're doomed, you know? Because God said, if you eat that fruit, you're going to surely die. They're dead. They're done. The story's game over. God, like reboot, start over. Control, alt, delete, whatever you got to do. But it's here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that we're given a promise. We're given a glimmer of hope. And keep in mind that this is in the midst of brokenness, all right? Sin is entered the world, and this is, this is the pronouncement against the serpent that led them astray. And this is what he says, speaking to this. This is what the Lord God says, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is uh, what some theologians have called, it's a Latin phrase, proto-evangelion, the preaching of the first gospel, the preaching like, of, the first, of, of, of the first good news. Keeping in mind here that in some of your other translations in the King James or a New King James, NASB, and, uh, it has the word seed. Like the, the war between your seed, the serpent's seed, and the woman's seed, right? Some of your translations. And we know that clearly here from Genesis 3.15, we see that there is going to be this epic battle in the story now. There's going to be this epic war, and it's going, to be between, it's going to be between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Don't you love that the Bible's a story? Can I get an amen? But the story moves now following this trajectory about this seed, the promised one, the promised offspring. And it seems that more darkness enters the story now within the next chapter. In Genesis 4, we're told, that, uh, we're told about the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. And it seems now at this point, like when you're looking at the story, all right, and just say you didn't know the future, you didn't know the rest of the scriptures, right? It almost seems like, God, what's happening, right? Because now, all right, it seems like the seed of the serpent is defeating the seed of Eve because now there's this discord in the family. Cain has just killed his brother. Now jealousy and murder have entered, I mean, this world in its, in its ugly form. Cain is now ousted. Abel lays dead. God, like, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to carry on this promise? Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 through 26. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God had appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word uh, Seth means appointed. And what appointed what? I believe it's referring to the promised seed, to the appointed seed. And you have to love that during, like, during these times of darkness and, and hopelessness and times where you just think that, man, the story is done. The story is dark. God, I don't know how you're going to carry on this, this, this promise that you've given. God shines a glimmer of grace here. And it would be through this godly line, through Seth, that the promise of the promised seed or offspring would come. So in other words, God is like, hey, don't worry, guys. I still got this, all right? Like, you don't need to worry. Like, I know what I'm doing. Genesis 5.3. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Very interesting part of this, of, this, uh, of this verse here is that it's the only other place where image and likeness are used together. Except it's different from, from the earlier account in that likeness and image are flipped. But since they're synonymous, they're I mean, referring to the same thing here. But we see here that from this verse and about Adam and fathering a son in his own likeness and image, we see this biblical concept and teaching of sonship. Again, like I said, that's the only other place where image and likeness are used. And it's with this concept of sonship that we understand more what exactly was fragmented and disoriented during the fall when sin and brokenness entered the world. One theologian comments, Genesis 5.3 echoes 1.26 and indicates that the succession of the image and the blessing are realized through sonship. So with sonship, with this, this whole concept of, of people being made in the image and likeness of God, carry this identity of you are a son, and with this, with this identity came this responsibility of, of ruling and reigning and being an intermediary. You see, in the ancient Near East, royal persons were considered the sons of the gods of, or representatives of the gods, intermediaries between deity and society. There have been found ancient royal inscriptions that that describe the king as made in the image of God. And these rulers were held responsible for the balance between nature and society through securing the favor of the gods. We also know that justice and well-being were dependent upon this so-called king's administration and rule. And one theologian comments, royal imagery was used to describe the Hebrew king as the appointed son of Yahweh who ruled in his name. So we see here in this whole, like, very, coming back to Genesis 1, that, all right, that, that God had made these people to, and made them in his identity as, as sons. So part of being made in the image and part of, part of humans being given the glory is that they, the fact that they were sharing in God's creative work, but attached to that was sonship, that, man, you are a child. You are this intermediary to, to reign and rule under the true king. But with that image and identity came responsibility. And here we speak of, speaking of, of the Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's not on the screen, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 through 16, speaking to David about, uh, about the coming Messiah. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, it's talking about this whole sonship concept. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Speaking of Christ. See, mankind, though, is appointed as God's royal representative. Again, that concept of sonship. To rule the earth in his place. But when the fall occurred... Sin didn't remove the image of God from people. When we said, you know what, God, we're going to reign and rule over ourselves, it's not that the image of God was stripped away because later on you, you still see commandments, especially Genesis 9, uh, 9, 6, where it says, you know, like, I mean, to, to take a life, I mean, you're, you're, you're taking, I mean, it's like you're harming the image of God. So hence, we know that people were still, like, we still carry this image, but what was affected was this concept of sonship. We rejected his reign and rule, which includes the task of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. And instead of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, what happened again? Sin, brokenness, self-reign, self-rule, self-exaltation ran rampant. And that makes sense, right? Because how many of us attempt to live our lives based on some sort of false identity, right? If we really believe we were sons and daughters of the creator king, right, we would live in a different manner, would we not? We wouldn't be so consumed with what people thought about us, right? We wouldn't be all about, hey, I grabbed my identity for how, success, how successful I am or how many degrees I have or, or how much I get paid or, or this or that or I'm a good son or I'm a good, I'm a good family member. We would solely grab our worth in the fact that we are in this sonship relationship, that I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king. And we would have a lot less insecurities, because what people thought of us wouldn't really matter. What the true king thought would really be the ultimate factor. And hence, this is what was affected. 
And because that's affected the way we view ourselves, it's affected our role and responsibility, how we live our lives, right? Because if you live your life based on identity that it's all about you, it's all about what you can establish, guess what? You're going to build a kingdom accordingly. And that's how it's affected it. Genesis 5.29, but we're talking not about you, we're talking about the promised seed. And Genesis 5.29, Noah would eventually come from this appointed line. We then have the great flood, but the Lord God is faithful to deliver Noah and his family. But this isn't really a story about them. It's about God's elective purposes. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we see that there's a continuation of this command of, of being made in the image of God and being fruitful and multiplying. And here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 and 7, in verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And even though mankind has made a mess of everything, God reminds humanity at the time that his purposes are going to continue. Even though mankind rebelled against God, it still doesn't change the fact that we're made in his image. God is faithful to, send, to his promise to send the promised seed that will crush the head of the serpent. It's still, like, it's still moving. Don't you love that? Like God's purpose, it just keeps moving, right? Like, you look at all this brokenness, man, there's a flood now. What's going to happen? You're going to wipe out the majority of the population. How, how is this going to happen? And God's like, I got this. All right, the promised seed is still coming. Genesis eleven twenty six, Abraham would now come from this line because he would eventually come from the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons. And then check out Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. It says, now Sarai, Ab- Abram's wife, was barren and she had no child. All right, now, let me tell you that this verse isn't thrown in there by accident, all right? The point of, of, of the writer of Genesis of putting this into, into this verse is that, you know what? God's redemptive purpose, his elective purpose, is going to continue forward, and nothing is going to stop it. No obstacle. And in fact, it's going to require the intervention of God. So it's telling us Sarai was barren, all right? And we know that through, through Abraham was going to come the promised seed. But guess what? It's not going to happen unless God intervenes. And there's no obstacle that's going to stop it. And then in chapter, uh, it would happen through the means that God had ordained. Had it been up to Abraham and Sarah, the promised seed would have come through Hagar, who would eventually have Ishmael. And we know that clearly Paul says in Galatians that Ishmael was not the promised promised child. You see what happens when man tries to intervene, like we try, hey, let's use our logic. And God's like, no, like, my, my, like you're, you're, the, the way you make decisions isn't going to change how I go about doing things, all right? That's encouraging, amen? Like, it's, it's not so much on me, it's on, it's on him, and he wants me to trust him. Genesis 12 is this reaffirmation of the promise given through the promised seed. And check this out. Chapter 12 comes right after chapter 11, where chapter 11 ends with a table of nations, all right? So what we're clearly seeing is when God is given this reaffirmation of this promise, he's got the whole world in scope, all right? He's talking about all nations and all people groups that this promised seed is going to bless. Let's read Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. A lot of times we just stop there. Like, God, that sounds good. I, just want, I, I want to be a great nation. I want you to make my name great, and that's it. But he continues, why? So that you will be a what? Blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? We're talking about the same concept of this offspring, of this promised seed. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill my promise that through you, someone's going to come. And through him, all right, I'm going to bless you by, by allowing him to come through your line. But through him is going to be this blessing of all the nations. See, God's redemptive plan of redemption ever since the beginning has been very wide in scope. It's not just about one, per, one people group or one ethnicity. It's about all the nations. And hence, that's why as Christians, we should care about the nations. Because God does, right? So Abraham would have Isaac. Isaac would have Jacob and Esau. And the interesting thing about this is if it were up to human intellect, Esau would be the promised one. But instead, the scriptures tell us that the older will serve the younger. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob would have 12 sons through four women. But the promised seed would come through the son who would come from the woman whom Jacob did not love, Leah. 
Jacob loved Rachel. And if it were up to Jacob, it would have been like, okay, Rachel and I are going to have the promised seed. Yet Leah, little did she know that from her line was going to come the promised seed. And it wouldn't be Leah's oldest son, Reuben. No, it would be Leah's youngest son, Judah. And on a side note, if you, if you find the placement of Genesis 38 a little odd, on the surface level, it does seem odd, right? Because you read Genesis 37, which is the introduction to the story of Joseph, and then, you know, you read about him and his brothers, and at the end of Genesis 37, he's, you know, sold into slavery, and then all of a sudden, Genesis 38 comes by, and it's like, Judah and Tamar. And then in Genesis chapter 39, it continues on with the story of Joseph. And you may seem like it's a little misplaced, but it's not if you think about the concept of the promised seed. Again, who was this blessing going to come through? It was all about God, right? And again, Genesis 38, there's, there's a lot of explanations. I don't have time to get into it, but eventually we can connect them to Perez, who we can connect eventually to the line of David, right? But more importantly, we see that Judah makes a mess of his life in, in, in Genesis chapter 38, Again I, again, I see that as a reminder of the glimpse of God that's saying that it's, it's not going to be about people. It's going to be about me and my redemptive purposes, and I'm going to use broken people. Because it's not about their performance. It's about me, and it's about my promise, and I'm going to fulfill it, and my promised seed will come. Is that, is that encouraging? No? Amen. So even in the midst of all this brokenness, Judah is both a terrible and fine example of a brother. Here in chapter 27, he's there to take advantage and he devises a plan to to sell him. And then later in Genesis chapter 43, Judah would be restored. It's almost like he's being put back as the head of the family because he would take the blame from his father if he didn't return Benjamin back to him. And in Genesis 44, when Joseph sets a trap to keep Benjamin, Judah offers his very life as a substitute for Benjamin. And we see here now there's these foreshadowings of this promise to come. It would be through him that we are given the greatest substitute. And eventually from that line of Judah would come a king by the name of David, who was given a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 through 17, that a promised seed would come whose kingdom would be established forever. And this is the promised seed. So when it's said that the Bible really isn't about you, this is why. Because it's about the promised seed who will come and make all things new. When you begin to read the Bible in light of the bigger story, you're like, wow. You, it really just forces you to be less self-absorbed. How do I know that? Because it, God is constantly doing that to me. Man, this is about you and your glory and your purpose, not about Chris's glory and purpose or, or your love letter to me. It's about your great grand redemptive plan that you have for all of creation that includes all people. And here we come to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the, under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that why? We might receive adoption as sons. The biblical writers use familiar language for a very specific purpose. As Paul is talking about adoption as sons, he's talking about that concept I was telling you about, about sonship. It's not a mere accident. It's not this detached scripture, all right? But did you catch that? Sonship is going to be restored. And we look at Jesus and we see that Jesus lived perfectly under the reign and rule of God. He lived in perfect obedience to everything that the Father had commanded, unlike Adam. And here's what perfect sonship looks like. It has image and purpose all tied together. Jesus living in perfect obedience to all that the Father had commanded. I just did a quick like, survey through the book of John. All right, just to like, just to give you, um, we're not going to read all these. I'm just going to shoot these references out just to show you, like, if we're looking at Jesus as this original design of, of what God intended for image, likeness, and purpose, here we go. John 3, 35 to 36, John the Baptist testifying that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, right? Remember I talked about in Genesis 1 about giving dominion and rule? The Father is saying, no, no, here's, here, here's the greater Adam in which I'm going to give all reign and rule authority over because he's going he's to be the one to fulfill everything. John 5, 18, the reason the Jews wanted to kill Jesus is because he called God his Father. There's a level of equality over there. 
John 5, 19, Jesus does nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He keeps living in this perfect obedience to the Father. John 5, 30, Jesus does nothing on his own. He only seeks the will of his Father. His desire every second of the day, Father, what do you, like, Father, it's your will I want to do. It's your will I want to do. John 6, 22 to 71, Jesus is the bread of life. The Father has sent him to give life. John 6, 38, Jesus came to do the Father's will. John 7, 20, John 7 29, Jesus knows the Father. John 8, 15 to 16, he also gives the Father's judgment. John 8, 19, if you knew me, you would also know my Father. John 8, 28, Jesus speaks what the Father has spoken to him. John 8, 29, Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father. John 10, 29 and 38, I and the Father are one. John 11, 41 to 42, at the raising of Lazarus, he says, the Father always hears me. John 12, 49, Jesus' obedience to the Father. John 13, 20, whoever receives the Son receives the Father. John 14, 6, only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus. John 14, 7, because you know me, you now know the Father. John 14, 9 and 10, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And John 14, 23, Jesus and Father and the Father making their home in the life of a disciple. John 14, 30, and 31, Jesus always obeys the Father. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. John 15, 15, all that Jesus heard from the Father, he shares with his disciples. John 15, 23, if they hate Jesus, they hate the Father. This shows their oneness, that they are truly one. In John 16, 15, all the Father has belongs to Jesus as well. I could go on and on and on. But we see this perfectly made son, this promised seed who lived under that perfect reign of God and imaged him. You see, Jesus is the last Adam, the life-giving spirit. A pastor by the name of Tim Keller says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. For more on this, I would really encourage you to listen to um, Pastor Brad's sermon on Romans 5, 12 through 19, titled, Death Through Adam and Life Through Christ. But here, I just, it's image, glory, sonship, all tied together through the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed. And the new humanity now is created in this new image that Jesus brings forward now. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49. The first man was from the earth, speaking of Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. So now it's in light of this that what Jesus' ministry entails uh, makes sense. Look at John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we clearly see again image, glory, um, all part of this, and sonship, part of the same package. But a, a theologian by the name of D.A. Carson explains the word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known, finally and ultimately in a real historical man, when the word became flesh, God because man. That word dwelt, when like the word became flesh and dwelt among us, means that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. And this phrase would have struck a chord with Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Greek Old Testament. It would have brought the, the imagery of the tabernacle where, where God met with Israel before the temple was built. And it was a place that, that people could go to to have a relationship with God. The tabernacle was erected at God's command, Exodus 25, 8 through 9. And, the, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. It was at this moment in time that God has chosen to dwell among his people in a very personal, personal and intimate way. So when the, words, when, the, when the Bible says the word became flesh, that's what it's signifying. It's connecting back to an Old Testament understanding. And this is how God wants to have a personal and intimate relationship with us. 
It's in Jesus that all the glory of God is made visible. All the beauty, magnificence, worth, and wonder is seen. And we, we understand glory. I understand the concept of glory so well. Like, I love to watch sports, and I love to watch the, the greatest moments in sports histories. Like, I love to watch, like, when, when, when someone makes the last second shot, you know, in a, in a very important game, or there's, like, this, like, beautiful you know, pass that's caught in the end zone, like, you know, in the fourth quarter. And like, you, you see those moments and there's a certain glory to it. There's a certain like magnificence. You're like, man, glory. But hear this imagery in John 1.14. It's saying, I mean, in all these different verses in John is that when you see Christ, you see the radiance of the invisible God. And that if you, were, if you, and, I were to, if you and I were to live and, and dwell among him when he was walking here on this planet, we couldn't help but say glory. Glory. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Another well-known verse, the Great Commission. I pray now as we come to this part of the story, it's a reminder that this is not disconnected from Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, the Father has given everything under his hand. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's this continuation of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God because the way that's done is through people and it's through the church. See, all authority has been given to Jesus. And in light of this fact, in light of the fact that all dominion, reign, and rule has been given to Jesus, we are to move forward now. And that's what we're made for. Look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Speaking of Jesus, right? In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Okay, this was like, this wasn't like a last minute, like, okay, let's, let's just go to McDonald's tonight, all right? This is like something that was decided beforehand, planned, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at verse 12, all right? So that we, who is that? Who is we? The church. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. It's carrying this imagery of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. And it's through the church that God will be given the glory. Does that make sense? God wants to do that through the church. That's, there's no plan B. This is plan A through the church, through Christ as the head of the church and through his people. That he wants to, that, that, he, that he wants he wants all this to be the, to the praise of his glorious grace. And if you read Ephesians, you're going to see that phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. So some closing challenges I have for you is, one, every time I go over the story of God, I have to ask myself, what am I really living for? What is the trajectory of my life? Because you see, the story gives, begins with the promise of Genesis 3.15. And there has been a fulfillment of that promise in that there has been a promised seed that has come to crush the head of our, of, of our greatest enemy. And it's through him, as Genesis 12 told us, that it's through him that all nations will be blessed. And the continuation of this saga is that Jesus calls his church, his people, that he is the head over and says, okay, we're going to continue to saturate this earth with the knowledge of the glory of God so that praise will be given where it's rightly due. And hence, he says, make disciples of all nations. That means that as the church, we're called to make disciples of all peoples. There's not a fabric in society in which God does not care about making disciples. And the question for you is, is, are you grafted into this story? Is your life about God's great, grand, redemptive story and plan through Jesus Christ? And I'm not saying, are you perfectly on board? None of us is perfectly on board, okay? And that's the point of the story. That's why you have story after story, encounter after encounter of people that did it imperfectly, all right? 
but you still have God's redemptive plan moving forward. But the beautiful thing is, this is what the father does. He says, hey kids, come play with me. This is, this is your playground, and I want you to play, all right? This is what I'm doing, and this is what's going to happen, and I want you to join me in that. I want you to join me in my mission of redeeming and rescuing creation, of filling this earth back with the knowledge of the glory of God. You see, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he was talking about the reign and rule of God. And he's saying it's at hand now. There is a future reality when Jesus is going to return. He's going to make everything all new. But right now, the kingdom can be experienced. When people, for example, are broken from the bondage of any kind of addiction or sin, that is the kingdom of God happening right there and then. If any of you have been set free from anything sinful in your life, it's because the kingdom of Jesus has come upon your life. You have submitted yourself under the reign of of Jesus, and he has set you free because the truth sets us free. Amen? I no longer live for myself. I I live for the glory of God. Now, there are times where we lose sight of that, and we start thinking about ourselves, or, or we buy into the fear. But here, we have to constantly reminder that Jesus, who commissioned us to make disciples, he said, all power and authority has been given to me. And I will never leave you. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. That means until he returns, he's going to be with us. That's why he sent us his Holy Spirit. So in this mission of making disciples, as difficult and as challenging and as dark as it can be sometimes, Christ is in the midst of that. And he's going to carry out his plan. Do you believe that, church? So church, my question to you is this. What is your purpose in life? Is it grafted into the greater story? Two, one of the ways that I see that your story can be grafted is, one, are you living in the context of community and a community on mission. And what I mean by that is that this is not just a pitch for life groups here, but what I, what I don't want anyone to think is that life groups are just some kind of church fad that we've, uh, that we've decided to pick up on. We believe at the core heart that the way that Jesus calls us to make disciples is in the context of community. And that all throughout the early church, these, these small pockets of believers went about declaring and displaying the grace of Jesus. And because they were doing that, people were coming and entering into the kingdom. And you see, you can't even do effective evangelism outside of community. Because John 13, 34 to 35 says, By this all men will know you're you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So what that's saying is that, one, are your lives visible to a watching world? And do you possess relationships in which people can see you guys loving each other? Because it's through that means that the world will know I'm real. So when we say, are you in community, that's what I'm asking you, is are you, are you in a community of people in which you're doing life together? And not that you're just saying, hey, we're just trying to create this insular group, like it's just all about us Christians. No, are you a family that is on mission, that is looking to expand the kingdom, because that's what God is all about. He wants to see the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So that would be my challenge to you. Are you connected to that kind of community? The second part would be a follow-up to that is, I know community is hard. Amen? Relationships are hard. That's one of the things that sin has broken is our relationships, you know? And because, you know what, for you and I, it's hard to be vulnerable. One of the, one of the best definitions I've heard of vulnerable is if you would picture yourself nude under a, trench, uh, under a trench coat and you would just go like this. And it's because you are totally just opening up like you're showing your frailties. You're showing that, you know what, I don't have it all together. You know what, I have so many frailties. I have so many flaws. I fail in so many ways. And if you really knew me, you would see. You would see how, how flawed I really am. But I don't want to do that, so I'm going to cover up. And I'm going to build some facade so that I can, I can present some kind of image. You see, what the gospel does is it strips that down. Because when we show how vulnerable we are, we're depending not upon our performance. We're depending upon our identity in Jesus. And community does that. You can't do that outside of community. Sorry. And a follow-up to that is uh, we're going to have the praise team come on up is when you're in community, I notice that there are some Christians that are just really gifted in pointing out people's flaws. You know who you are. You see, you see everything. Like, you know, something's misplaced. You're like, ah, oh, you know, you, you pick it out. And I tell you what, if you understand the story of God, it will help you see people. Because you know what? <laughs> Check this out. In um, 2 Corinthians... Uh, chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
for this comes from the, law, from the Lord, sorry, who is, who is the Spirit. And you have to be encouraged by this verse because Paul is telling us that this process of, of sanctification, of Romans 8, like you're being conformed into the image of Christ, it's a process. And everyone is in process this side of heaven, all right? Which means that when you look at people, you don't look at them as they are, you look at them as they will be. Because that would, that's, that's what Paul is saying, all right? Yes, this image has been corrupted, but there is going to come a day in which this, this image, it's being, it's being restored by Jesus currently, and there is going to be a day in which it's, it's completely restored. So that should propel the way that you look at other people in community. You should be fueled with, with patience because, in other words, if you're seeing people for as they are, you're not being filled with the Spirit at that moment. I'm going to say you're being filled more with the flesh, and I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because I do that. I do that, and as I examine my own heart, I notice that, man, Chris, you're not walking in the Spirit. You're walking in the flesh. So as you understand this image of God and the story of God, it's going to propel you to be more patient in community because you're going to see people not as they are, but as they will be. And it's going to also propel you to live in, in just the imperfection and messiness of life because you know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So church, the whole mission the whole reason of why we live is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. What are you filling the earth with? And honestly, if you're, you know, if you're rusting there, like and just saying, man, I don't know what I'm filling the earth with. Or if you know that you're filling the earth with, with, with some wrong things, come before the Lord and repent. Repentance is to be an ongoing thing in our lives, brothers and sisters. Repentance is an acknowledgement that Jesus, I don't have it all together. Is there anyone in this room that, like, you can say, life, I nailed it, I got it down perfectly? Is, is there anyone that can say that in this room? If you can, you're a little misled. Just a little bit. I don't have it all together. In fact, I fail following Jesus in some capacity every day. I do. In, in, I, every day I do. But every time I fail, I come before the Lord Jesus. And I say, Jesus, it's not about me. I trust in the one who is perfect and who has performed perfectly. And what you ask of me is dependence and trust. You see, in Genesis 1, 26 to 30, dependence is also included in what it means to be made in the image. You see, it's not like dependence is this bad thing, like, oh, the fall happened and we got to depend. Even prior to the fall, God had made the, the trees for food for Adam and Eve. And it was a reminder that you are to be dependent upon me. I am the creator. You are the creation. And even though I've given you this dominion to rule, you are to be daily reminded that you need me every day. And the gospel of Jesus is a reminder that we need him every day. And dependence is a good thing. And you look at the life of Jesus. Who did Jesus depend on every moment of the day? He depended upon his Father in heaven, and he gave us the template. He gave us the example of how you are to live your life. And more importantly, he's given us his spirit that empowers us and that allows us to to be, to walk in that. So, church, he's just asking you to trust and obey. He's not asking you to have it all together, all right? You don't have to have this jazzed-up resume. You just have to trust and obey, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your patience for us, God. Thank you for your great, grand, redemptive story that is a constant reminder to me that it's not about me. It's not about, it's not about anything else other than you and what you're doing. Father, thank you that in your great, grand, redemptive story, you use us as broken people, God, because I confess I am broken. I confess that, uh, Lord, apart from you, like, man, just would be living a life of destruction and eternal destruction, of course, as well. But, God, I thank you because you are so gracious and compassionate that you have created creation, you've created humanity that one, that they would have a relationship in you and that they, would have a rela- that they would have a life lived of purpose to go and to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of you. God, we want to be all about that, but we also confess that that comes with, with real challenges, God. 
namely us. We get in the way, our you know, self-centeredness and our, our just constant thinking about ourselves and our own needs and our own safety even, God. So much so that our need for our own safety deters us from participating in the mission of God. Forgive us for that, Lord. So I see your disciples in the early church gave up their very lives. And I know that in Revelation, that there's going to be martyrs who's, who's got their robes dipped in, in blood and made white because they've, they've chosen to suffer solely for the name of Jesus. Forgive us for, for believing some good news of safety. Shame on us. Lord, we want to be all about your mission, no matter the cost. And we don't say that out of a gospel of morality. We say that because, Lord Jesus, you who had everything, left everything, took on the flesh of man and gave everything for the sake of a people who chose to rebel against you. That is true love. And Lord, we receive your true love for us, knowing that we receive it by grace through faith and not by anything we do because none of us in here, none of us in here can meet the righteous demands of the law. And if any of us thinks we do, Lord, I pray that you would bring us all to a place of repentance, that we would say, Jesus, I'm not trusting in what I can do. I'm not trusting in my righteousness, but I'm trusting in the righteousness that you have brought forth through your life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus, I know that you have ascended. I know that all power and authority has been given to you. And I know that you are with me, surely, to the end of the age. And help me to live in light of that, Jesus, that I would take more risks for you, Jesus, because I know that you're with me. And I pray that as a church, we would be all about that, God. That we would be all about asking, where are you not getting glory in our city? And like Isaiah saying, Lord, here am I, send me. Because this is a city that desperately needs to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And there's no plan B. The answer is not the government. The answer is not some nonprofit institution. The answer is the body of Christ with Jesus as its head. And Lord, help us, God, because we confess, Lord, we cannot do this. But God, we acknowledge that you've You've called the church to go out. Help us to go out, God. Help rid rid us of our selfishness. Rid us of our self-centeredness, Lord. So God, we want to trust you and we want to follow you wherever you would lead. Help us as parents to be examples to our kids as well. That when our kids saw us and the way we lived our life, that they would understand what it means to follow Jesus in 2014 and 15. I pray that you would empower our single people as well, God. Help them to know that their identity is not on whether they're married or not or whether they have kids. Affirm them in their gospel identity that they are made in the image of God and they are called to be part of the church family to also go forward to make disciples. God, I ask that you would bless our young people as well, our students, our children. I pray that they would know that they are to be part of this mission now and that a life spent pursuing the things of God is never life wasted. They are not missing out if they just make Jesus their whole aim. And I pray that you would spur on our young people, God, because they need encouragement. And I pray for protection against the evil one over this whole body, God. We know that we, know that we do have a great tempter who is constantly trying to get us to defray from the mission of God. So God... Uh, We trust in you. You're our only hope for this life and the life to come. We love you. We want to trust you in everyday life. And would you be magnified and lifted high in our city. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.